Would you bow your hearts and your heads with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the incredible privilege we have to open your word. I do pray, as I am confident there are a thousand distractions available to each of us, but it would be my prayer for the next few moments that we might be able to set aside all of those distractions and focus intently and completely on your word. And I ask that your spirit would take your words, not mine, and speak to each of us. And for the heart that is discouraged, I I pray that you would encourage it. For the heart that is souring, that you would comfort it. And I pray that all of us would be convicted to change. And as we leave this morning, God, it is my prayer that we would leave changed for your honor and for your glory. For it is in your son's holy and precious name I ask. Amen. What's your favorite book of the Bible? That was a question that was posed to me uh, several years ago by a young believer in the church. And, And my stock answer when somebody asks that is, whatever book I happen to be studying. But that wasn't good enough. She really wanted to to find out what my favorite book was. And and so I I have to admit, I'm more of a New Testament guy than an Old Testament guy. And I I have to say that my favorite author is Paul. Somehow I just relate to him uh, better. But it's interesting. I pastored for 25 years in the same place. In a little tiny town in the center part of Iowa that none of you have probably ever heard of, called Victor. And so many of the the books in the New Testament didn't really relate to my context. Paul wrote and visited primarily the metropolitan areas, the Rome, the Corinth, the Ephesus, the Thessalonica, the, the Philippi, the major metropolitan areas. But there is one book that wasn't written to a big city. In fact, if you go back and you, you study the history of the city of Colossae, about 500 years before Paul would get there, there were two major trade routes that came from the north and came from the east. And they came together in the city of Colossae. And so the town boomed. And then about 200 years before Paul would get there, the trade routes would shift to the south and to the west. And Colossae would be bypassed. An earthquake would come at the end of the first century, and as far as anyone in ancient history is concerned, the city of Colossae was forgotten. In fact, you can go to its ruins today. This is what they look like. Because nobody has ever seen the need to do any uh, investigation because Colossae wasn't really that important of a city. And yet Paul wrote two letters to a town most of the world had forgotten the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. And the book of Colossians is without question one of the greatest Christological treasures we have. In fact, in chapters 1 and chapter 2, you have some of the most important doctrines you will find anywhere in all of Paul's writing. But one of the reasons I love the book of Colossians is it's a book consumed with thanksgiving. Every single chapter, Paul is going to include a command for you to give thanks. He's going to end the, the book with saying, when you pray, you ought to be praying with gratitude. He's going to say, when you sing, you ought to be singing 
with gratitude. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to use the word thankful four times. In chapter 2, he's going to remind us, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding with thanksgiving, and that just before he launches into this great Christological passage, he's going to want us to understand that what Christ has done must move us to gratitude. But my fear is, if I say the word thanksgiving, the first thing that comes to most of your mind is a holiday in the month of November where you do almost everything other than give thanks. I wonder, are we known as thankful people? Are you known as a thankful person? Well, what exactly do I have to give thanks for? Well, thankfully enough, Paul begins, as he does most of his letters, with a a quick introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then he launches into, well, my Bible describes it this way. Now, the titles are not inspired, so... I won't correct God's word other places, but with the titles, I will. Because my Bible calls this Paul's Thanksgiving and Prayer. And I really don't like that title because it gives the impression that Thanksgiving and prayer are two separate things. I spend time thanking God, and then I spend time asking God. May I suggest that probably I would like it to say Thanksgiving and petition. Because I would suggest they are both prayer. Because if you notice in verse 3 and in verse number 7, Paul's going to say, I'm praying for you. But this is where it gets really convicting to me. And one of the huge dangers anytime you have the privilege of standing up in front of people is projecting my failures upon you. So this may not apply to you at all, but it does to me. My prayers often sound a lot like, thank you, Lord, gimme, 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 do, 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 work, 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 amen. But notice Paul's prayer. Half of his prayer is dedicated to thanksgiving. And then he gets to petitions. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that all of you spent some time last week in prayer. Whether that's five minutes for the whole week or five hours a day, I don't know. But I'm guessing all of us spent some time in prayer. Would you break down your prayer life saying, I spent half of my time in prayer giving thanks to God for what he's done. And then the other half in requests and petitions. I don't like I should. So for the few moments we have this morning, I want to challenge us by looking at Paul's Thanksgiving. And he begins with a statement, we always thank God. Now there's some discussion as to where exactly always should be placed. Some of the translations place it to prayer that he always prays. After all, in 1 Thessalonians, the shortest verse in the Greek Bible, pray without ceasing, is one of Paul's better known verses. But I don't think that always should go with prayer. I think the ESV, the NIV, gets it right. He's saying, I always thank God every time I pray for you. Be honest. Do you have anybody that's true? I just can't pray for you without first thanking God for you. Is that true of your spouse, your parents, your children, your coworkers, the person sitting next to you? Can you honestly say, every time I pray for you, I begin by saying, thank you, God, for what you have, are, and will do in and through them. Paul said, even though I've never met you, we won't get to chapter 2, 
I don't have any idea when I'm supposed to be done this morning, but I don't think you want me to get all the way to chapter 2 or we'll be having supper together instead of lunch. But in chapter 2, he's going to begin by saying that even though I've never been face-to-face with you, I thank God for what I hear about you. And so what does Paul give thanks for? I would suggest he's going to give thanks for five things. The first thing is for their faith. Now, we live in a day and age where there is this contradiction that's thrown out there that you need to be a person of science and not a person of faith. I mean, after all, we're a a modern society. We're a thoughtful society. Clearly, we don't make decisions based on faith. We make decisions based on science. You can't live without faith. I lived in the Twin Cities 30 years ago. I can't get over how the traffic has changed in the last 30 years. Do you know how much faith it takes to drive in Minneapolis, St. Paul today? I came from Blaine this morning, and as I was getting onto the the Interstate 35, there was a truck driver who missed his turn and decided my lane should be his lane. I believed he was going to stay in his own. The reality is every single one of us knows somebody's story where somebody didn't stay in their lane, and it caused great harm. And yet you believe they're going to. I'm guessing almost all, if not all of you, have a bank account where you, I don't even see my money. It just magically shows up in my account and then I get to spend it and I believe the bank is going to give it back to me when I want it. And yet we can't go a day without there being another news story about a bank that's failing. And yet I believe the money will be there. But I think for me, the place it becomes most obvious Someday, if you live long enough, you will find yourself in a room with a total stranger who says, I must do horrible and terrible things to your body, but it's for your good. Believe me. About a decade ago, I had the privilege of going through uh, a disease called Miller-Fischl syndrome. It's a variant of Guillain-Barre. I won't bore you with all the details, but it's where your body decides your nerves are the enemy. And my body started to attack it. My hands started to, to, to tingle. Soon my voice turned very nasally. Eventually I got to the place where my eyes wouldn't move, so I couldn't see. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk. And I finally got my wife out of bed in the middle of the night and said, I, I think we need to go to the hospital. I went to the University of Iowa Hospital. It's about 45 minutes from where we were living went through this whole battery of tests, and this total stranger said to me, I think what you need to do is to go through a procedure called plasma aphresis. Plasma aphresis is where they take your blood, run it through a blood centrifuge, spin off all of the liquid part, the plasma part, throw it away, and then replace it with a donor plasma. But he informed me in order to do that, they have to put in the main artery in your neck, two tubes. But because of my condition, they were fearful that if they put me to sleep, I would never wake up. So I will never forget laying in a surgical suite at the University of Iowa Hospital, surrounded by a group of people I had never met, haven't met since, and coming at me while I'm fully awake. Yes, they gave me, they numbed it up, but cut into the main artery in my neck and said, it's for your good. Spoiler alert, I survived. My life was 100% in their hands. I trusted 
They were doing this for my good. Some of you will have a doctor say, I need to bypass your heart. Let me take your heart and stop it, fix it, and restart it. It's for your good. That's faith. But whether you recognize it or not, every single person who's ever lived believes something but what happens the moment you take your last breath. Many in our world believe that we came from nowhere, we are nothing, and as soon as we die, we cease to exist. Do you believe there is nothing after death? Others will say, no, 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 you need to trust the church. You need to trust yourself that if you do enough good things, if you get baptized, if you do communion, if you come, if you do enough good things, that your faith in some ritual will be enough. But if you notice, Paul was thankful that their faith was in Christ Jesus. To the man who does not work but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith results in God crediting to your account his righteousness. Where's your faith this morning? Because one day sooner than any of us can even believe, we will be on the other side. Do we believe in Christ Jesus? Paul is excited and gives thanks, first of all, for their thanksgiving. Secondly, for their love. Love is one of those words. In English, we have one word. In Greek, they had four. So we lump everything together. I can talk about loving my wife's cooking in the same sentence as loving my wife. But I can promise you, if I talk more about her cooking than her, I'm going to get in trouble. We use love all kinds of different ways. I'll never forget, I was at a Valentine's banquet probably 35 years ago. And the person doing the speaking, I can't even tell you what he was speaking on, but his illustration is stuck with me. He said, on your way home this evening, put your radio in the car on scan. Now, some of you newer, younger people might not realize you have a radio. That's something that you can hit. And anyway, you scan through it. And just as it stops for that 15 seconds, take note of the subject of the song. His comment at that time, about 75% of songs are going to be on the subject of love. And then try and figure out what love they're talking about. We use the word love all the time, but I don't know that we really know how to define it. How would you define love? Well, how about if we let John define it for us? In John chapter 4, he's going to define love this way. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The greatest demonstration of love is God saw your need and he gave his only son to take the punishment you deserve. At the core of love is giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. But I think it's really interesting because in chapter 3, the previous chapter, John paints a little different perspective. It was the father who sent his son but don't think the son wasn't involved. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus willingly died in your place. 
And then John applies it. So what's that mean to me? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Not a single one of you in this room has done it. You know how I know it? You get to do it once. You can only die for someone else once. And so he shifts. Oh, okay, well then, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words. Now, please don't hear that to mean you should never tell your wife you love her. That you, Like the older guy at the 50th anniversary said, I told my wife, my wife, when we were married, I loved her, and I'll let her know if it changes. And that's not what he's trying to suggest. Not that you shouldn't say you love, but true love is not simply about words. It's about actions. It's about truth. So let me go back to last week a second time. If I passed out a sheet of paper and asked every single one in this room to write down, I demonstrated love in a tangible way this last week by, what would you put? See, we are called to love in action, not just words which means we have to actually get off our backsides and do something. But Paul pushes it once again to a place I'm not very comfortable with. He says, I'm thankful for the love you have for half the saints, most the saints, almost all of the saints, except for that one guy. Come on, nobody really can love that person. Love for all the saints. My guess is you heard something about the Asbury revival, and, and my intention is not to go into the legitimacy of it, but I was doing some reading and came across the video that Asbury uh, College put out, and it was a young girl who was there on that first day and stayed for the majority of the 13 days. One of the comments she made really hit me. She said, Asbury College is a college of about a thousand students and you pretty much know everybody and you can watch the groups and the cliques and you know who gets along with who and you know who has a problem with who. She said as a result of those 13 days, she watched as people threw their arms around their enemy, their adversary, forgave them and wept with them. The distinguishing characteristic of the early church who were dying for their faith was that they loved one another. I wonder if I took a survey of Roseville, would they say the characteristic that distinguishes Christ's Bible church from all of the churches around is that they have love for one another. For me, one of the most amazing comments Christ would ever make in the upper room, he will say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, not by your love you have for me, not by your love you have for God. That's a given. But the world will know that you love me because you love one another. Paul is excited that they had love for all of the saints. And then he says, I'm guessing you primarily use the ESV. I brought the NIV with me because I love the way it translates verse number five. The, the Greek is, is probably correct to say because of. I love the imagery that the faith and love spring up out of what? Hope. Hope is a word that we've just redefined. In modern day terminology, hope means the desire for an extremely unlikely event to occur. I hope the Minnesota Vikings will win the Super Bowl. But come on, you all know that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I hope to get done before your roast is burned. 
we have this desire for these unlikely events to occur. But that's not the way the New Testament uses the word hope. Hope speaks of a confident expectation of a future event that transforms the way I live currently. It is something I am so confident is going to occur, it changes the way I act. Let me give you one illustration. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 is this incredible hall of faith as it's often described as the author of Hebrews goes through some of the great men and women of the Old Testament and illustrates how their faith was lived out in everyday life. In verse 24, he says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Can I give you the 60-second summary of Moses' life? Moses is loved by his parents and refused to be killed as the law demanded. Eventually, he ends up in Pharaoh's household, and for the first 40 years of his life, he lives in the greatest wealth possible on the planet at that time. At year 40, God sends him off to the backside of the desert where he follows sheep around for 40 years. And then in a burning bush, God says, go back to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses goes back and through these amazing miracles we call plagues, he, he humiliates all of the gods of Egypt and he leads the nation of Israel through the Red Sea into the Sinai Desert. He goes and he has the wonderful privilege of speaking to God face to face. And then for the next 40 years, he wanders with a group of whiny, complaining adults. For those of you who have young children, imagine the next trip takes you 40 years to get to where you're going. Are we there yet? For 40 years, he has to listen to these people whine and complain. And finally, God brings him and he says, all right, you can go look at the promised land. And then he dies. I'm sorry. How is that good news? How is Moses an example? If this life is all there is. But Moses' eyes were not focused on the 120 years of his life. They were focused on eternity. And because he was absolutely convinced he could endure the whining and complaining, because he knew he had a greater reward. In fact, if you go just a chapter earlier, the author says this, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In my position, I have the wonderful privilege of worshiping with 40 different congregations across four states. Last week, I was in Apple Valley. One of the NAB churches is a Russian church. And so last week, I was speaking through an, interrupter, an interpreter. <laughs> The pastor came to the States 33 years ago, and we were talking, and he was sharing a little bit of his history. In 1965, he was living in Ukraine, and the KJB came to the city he was in, rounded up a 1,000 people or more, put them on a train, 
ship them all the way to Kazakhstan, stopped the train in the middle of nowhere and said, this is your home, get out. I started to wonder, how would have I responded if tomorrow I show up at my house and the police are there and saying, I'm sorry, we're moving you to northern Canada and you'll just have to make a life for yourself there. Could I joyfully accept the confiscation of my property? I could. If I firmly believe this life is not all there is. See, I fear that too many of us, like all of those around us, are so caught up in this life that we are consumed with its comforts and pleasures and we can't imagine an existence without them. And we miss the better and lasting possessions. See, Paul is going to say that this hope that is stored up for you in heaven springs out in the form of faith and in love. And where do I find this hope? The hope is found exclusively in the gospel. In fact, it's interesting to me that Paul is going to make two statements. He's going to make certain that we understand that this gospel is not my truth. It's not your truth. It is the truth. That the gospel is true. In fact, he's going to say it twice to make certain that we understand that the gospel is true. And because of the gospel, I understand that there was a time when God created everything and made man human, humans perfect and put them in an, uh, an incredible environment and then man fell and for the rest of this writings of scripture, all the way till you get to Revelation 21, God is pursuing man and sharing the opportunity of salvation so that at the end of the book, we are back to where we began with God forever because he sought us. That's the gospel. In fact, I would suggest the only hope I have, the only thing I have to offer you this morning is the gospel. But the gospel is enough because eternity is real and we will one day be in his presence, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, far from it, but because Jesus died in our place and offers for us eternity with him. Paul, in Colossians 3, is going to say we need to take our eyes off the temporal and cast them to the eternal. Do we do that? He gives thanks first for their faith, then their love, then their hope, and then he gives thanks for their fruit. I don't have time this morning to really explore this in great depth, but the New Testament actually uses the word fruit in a number of different ways. In fact, in chapter 1, I would suggest he defines it two different ways. He's going to pray. We're not going to get to the request this morning, but beginning in verse number seven, he's going to jump into the prayer request portion of the passage. And he's going to share how, how that he is praying that they would bear fruit in every good work. The result of this faith, this love, this hope comes out in the things that we do. But I don't think that's exactly how he's using fruit in his thanksgiving. He's using fruit, the result of the gospel. That as the gospel goes out all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. And I love the way he states it because, let's be honest, most of us are a little scared to share our faith. 
Because I might not have all the right answers. See, I, I fear that too often I view evangelism as this opportunity to debate my neighbor on what is true. And what happens if they don't have, what happens if they ask a question that I don't know an answer to? It's all about me, right? I have to convince them. Notice Paul rejoices because it's the gospel that's bearing fruit. My job is to share the gospel. It's God's job to take the gospel and change hearts. I love the description Spurgeon used of it. The gospel is the lion. And the only way to protect it is to let it free. It'll take care of the protecting on its own. My job is to share the gospel. And I will watch as God uses his gospel to bear fruit. But please don't hear that to suggest you don't have to do anything. Why doesn't God take you to heaven the moment you accept his gift? I mean, let's face it. I really enjoyed the time of worship through music this morning. It's fun to be in a place where people are singing well and the sound fills the room. But come on, do you really think you can compete with heaven's worship service? You have some talented musicians, but come on. Let's just be honest here. Heaven's going to be a little better. I'm going to guess most of you had that twinge when we gathered around the table of something you wish you hadn't said, hadn't done, hadn't thought this past week. In heaven, you will never have to spend time in confession because you will not sin. You won't have to wonder what the glory of God is like because you will be in its presence. Why doesn't God take us to heaven the moment we trust him? Because we have a job to share his gospel with those around us. When was the last time you, certainly not perfectly, not completely, but simply shared the good news of Jesus with a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member. Because Paul is excited that when the gospel goes forth, it bears fruit. But going forth is our job. And he rejoices the, the, the church in Colossae who was giving out the gospel and the gospel was producing a lot of fruit. And one final thing, he gives thanks for Epaphras. What do you know about Epaphras? If your answer is not much, that's the correct one. Epaphras is mentioned three times and we're given three different details of his life. In the book of Philemon, he's called a fellow prisoner with Paul. So chances are good he was in prison. In the end of the book of Colossians, he's called a faithful prayer warrior for the church at Colossae. Here he's called a faithful servant. All we know about Epaphras. And yet I think Epaphras is becoming one of my favorite people in the New Testament. Because I ain't never going to be an Apostle Paul. And I don't mean to crush your bubble, but neither are you. But I could be an Epaphras. I could be a, a servant, a prayer, maybe a prisoner. I, I, I could maybe do that. And for the rest of eternity... Epaphras' name is written in God's word forever because God doesn't miss the Epaphrases of this world. God notices everything his children do. 
Can I leave you just with a couple thoughts this morning? I, I don't ever want to open God's word with the assumption that everybody in the room has placed their faith in Christ. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. But if you have never trusted Christ, I, I, I implore you, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. Talk to somebody in this room and find out what does it really mean to place your faith in Christ. Because there is no more important decision you will ever make. Have you accepted the grace that God has given us in his son? But secondly, what tangible act are you going to do this week? To love someone. Can I challenge you before you leave this morning to pray this prayer? God, show me one way I can share your love with somebody around me. And then don't just pray the prayer. Go do the prayer. See, I, I fear that we sit around waiting. God, I want to be struck by a lightning bolt. Then I will know that I'm supposed to do something. When he's pushing us and moving us. What tangible way can you show your love? And then lastly, I want to change my one person. I do not know Levi well. I have been getting to know him. I've been doing this job for June 1st is when I began last year, so almost a year. God has led you an incredible man of God who knows God's word, who loves God's son, and who loves you. When was the last time you thanked God for bringing you Pastor Levi? Can I challenge you to do something this week? To begin each day saying, thank you, God, for Pastor Levi. See, I, I really do believe if we look even a little tiny bit, there are many things we can give thanks for. We're just too busy looking for the things we want, and we don't stop to think about the things we have. Would you bow your hearts and your heads with me? God, I, I thank you for the incredible privilege of opening your word. I, I thank you for the book of Colossians. And God, I know that there's so much more that should and could be said this morning. But God, it is my prayer that you would take at least one thing and speak to each of us. That you would convict us somehow, in some way, to leave this morning changed for your honor and for your glory. And then God, I pray this week, that we might do that which you show us. Not for our own glory, not because we will receive some kind of praise for it, but because you died for us and have given us the chance to live for you. Use us, for it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.